I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, evening, middle of the night. Don't know when you're listening. Welcome. Welcome to season two of the Beyond Trauma podcast. I'm pretty excited we got here. And I'm very, very excited isn't the right word. Heartwarmed and energized to introduce to you the premiere episode of season two and our very, very special guest, Sean Korn. Many of you will know that Sean Korn is an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher, an author, a public speaker. She's been on the forefront of yoga activism and community service for almost three decades. She is known for her social activism, her impassioned teaching style. Sean as you probably know, is raw, honest, articulate, and spiritually inspired in her self-expression. Her leadership and commitment to justice for all beings, along with her 30 plus years of yoga practice, have galvanized thousands to practice, pray, and to find purpose. She has chosen to use her platform to bring awareness to global issues such as social justice, sex trafficking, HIV, AIDS, awareness, and animal rights. In 2005, Sean was named the National Yoga Ambassador for Youth AIDS. And in 2013, she received both the Global Green International Environmental Leadership Award and the Humanitarian Award from the Smithsonian Institute. Sean co-founded the organization Off the Mat Into the World, which trained leaders in community activism. She also co-founded Global Seva Challenge, which raised over $3.0 by activating yoga and wellness communities in fund and awareness raising efforts. Her first book, Revolution of the Soul, was published in fall of 2019. It's fantastic. I just read it for the second time. And her online program, Align with Source, has a global reach of thousands and has been a touchstone of community support during the pandemic. And, you know, that's Sean's bio. But what I want you to know and what I know you are going to pick up in this interview is that Sean is a real person doing the real work of life, dealing with life, being with life. And being honest with herself, her intentions, and her personal growth. There's nothing that Sean does that each one of us can't do. So if you're like me and uh, a fan, instead of just idolizing this great yoga hero, (laughs) heroine, um, let's look to what we can learn about the things that she's doing, the commitment that she's made to her practice 
that we can also do and attain. This episode is long. We cover a lot of ground. Sean takes the time to go deep into what happens to our body from inevitable life trauma and exactly the process of yoga on letting go of the tension in our bodies, the addiction of tension in our bodies, and awakening to truth of self and to love. I also push her for advice for yoga teachers, as I know there are many of you there who want to do better and learn more and be better teachers. And we know that Sean has so much knowledge and so much wisdom to give us on how we can grow as teachers. She really is a mentor and she's really growing into that role as she hits her mid fifties and she has some messages for you yoga teachers and for the whole yoga community. And we end the episode with some talk about breath work, chakra work, and with Sean's plans for the future. So make sure you listen all the way to the end to hear what she has coming up next. You know, Sean is one of those very rare heroes in one's life that when you meet them, they really don't disappoint. She's been a supporter of mine, and I want to say a big thank you to Sean, and uh, I hope you all will enjoy this conversation, hearing it as much as I did having it. She even made me cry. Here you go. There we go. Well, first of all, Sean, I didn't get to thank you, so I just want to thank you. Um, You know, I know I can only imagine how busy you are and how many requests you get. So thanks for saying yes. Well, I tend to say yes to people that I know and that I adore and I appreciate the work that they're doing in the world. And you're up on that list. And so it was an easy yes. Mm. I didn't give it any thought. I saw your name. I didn't even look at to see what the theme was. Wow. And I was like, oh yeah, sure, mm. of course. And so I appreciate you very much. Oh gosh, thank you. I appreciate you. I've been a, a fan girl for a long time and <laughs> it's been really wonderful the last years just getting to know you a little more and uh, experiencing some of your teachings and getting to have these conversations with you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I thought of you for this podcast really after reading your book. I definitely, yeah, I don't call you for everything. <laughs> I try to think <laughs> about, you know, where things really fit and make sense. And the podcast is, the theme of the podcast is the impacts of trauma and using embodied practices, how we can use them to move and shift those impacts. And honestly, I didn't really know about your experience with trauma until I read your book. And then I was like, wow, well, we really have to have Sean on this. And so I'd like to talk about that today, but before we do, I mean, I want to ask you as, you know, human to human and as, you know, friends or developing friendship, you know, just how are you today as far as being resourced and grounded and able to talk about trauma and your specific and personal experience with it? Well, I appreciate you asking that question. I think that's really thoughtful and it's the the right tone in which to talk to anyone about trauma is just doing that little check-in. And unfortunately, that doesn't get done often or not, especially for people like me who are more seasoned with this work. There's an assumption that, you know, you've done the work and that you're past it or that you're not going to get re-triggered or or traumatized in any way. And that's not necessarily true. To answer your question, I'm completely resourced. I'm good to have this conversation. I have a network of support that I rely on in my own life. And I check in with my body a lot when questions come up to discern whether or not 
how comfortable I will feel answering those questions. Whereas in the past, I mean, I recall an interviewer once reached out to me and uh, point blank asked me directly what happened to me. And my trauma, as you know, from the book stems back from childhood sexual abuse. And so I remember them wanting, asking me point blank, well, what happened? No one had actually ever asked me like to describe the details. And I remember, I can picture myself exactly where I was in that moment downstairs in the kitchen when they asked that question. And I froze for a moment and felt the impulse to answer the question like a good girl. I felt like I had some kind of a responsibility. They asked the question, so I have to answer it. And I kind of stammered and I began to uncomfortably respond. And then all of a sudden, the little voice in my head was like, you have agency. Mm -hmm. You don't have to tell anything or you can tell everything, but it's on your terms. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to answer that question. But I almost did. Like I almost did out of just habit, conditioning, fear, that old traumatic belief of not being believed. So it's like, oh, then I'll, I'll prove it here. Here's, you know, mm -hmm. isn't it enough that I said it, that this is what it is. And so, you know, that was, I don't even know how long ago, 15 years ago when that happened. And I remember just thinking like, man, this work, it never ends. It's a constant checking in with yourself because every day is different. So again, to answer your question, today <laughs> I am good to, and I am resourced to talk about trauma without fearing that I run the risk of in any way re-traumatizing myself or getting triggered. And if I do, I also have the capacity to take care of myself and to let you know what my boundaries are uh, yeah. within that. No, thank you for that that answer and, you know, really like detailing that. Cause I think I could definitely relate to and feel in my body that impulse to answer someone's question and feel mm -hmm. like I have to. Mm -hmm. And those times where before I knew how to check in and even now still that sometimes I'll start to, and then take that pause to step mm -hmm. back. And it's such a good lesson for all of us. Like we can say no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Agency. That is my word. It included my book. Like when I started writing my book, that was very, very traumatic for me in that process. This was not an easy process for me. It was very emotional and it required me to have to, in my mind and imagination, travel back to places and describe moments, times, events in a way that I hadn't in a very, very long time. And I resisted it, but it was really affecting the creative process. And I remember finally telling myself that I had to write everything, but I didn't have to print anything. And what that did for me is that it gave me the agency. I decided what was going to go in that book. But before I could decide what went into the book, I needed to write it all down. I needed to look at it. I needed to feel it. I needed to revisit the places, the smells, the textures, the clothes. I had to process the emotions and in some ways feel it and then become more neutral to it. Only then could I decide what would stay and not stay in the book. And that was one of my mantras was, was also just agency. You have agency. This is your story to tell. So by the time I was done writing the book, 
it didn't have the same charge. Mm. I felt like I was able to put into the book what I felt was relevant to the book creatively, what was relevant in terms of moving the story along, but that I could also get rid of anything that I felt was going to be too just unnecessary, sensational, things that I just didn't feel comfortable with. I was able to pluck them away, but I didn't have a big... By the time it was done, it was more looking at it and saying, well, this doesn't feel relevant to this particular book. This story doesn't really add. I could say this in one sentence, but it couldn't happen until I fully went into the experience. Mm. It speaks to the power of agency. And also I'm just thinking about the power of journaling, like the, you know, as a tool and thinking about just how getting it out Mm -hmm. on the paper can release some of that charge of an experience. For some, for me, it's difficult because I have, I have something that's, what's it called? Something recall, psychological recall. I can't remember exactly the name for it, but like, for example, there's one lie in my book and that lie is the texture of the rug. When I describe, I describe a moment when I had a, like a flashback while I was in a yoga class, while energy is moving from my body, I get an image that I hadn't had in a very long time. And in that image, I describe the texture of the shag green carpet underneath me as being soft. That wasn't true. The texture was actually very scratchy and very rough. But I remember when I was writing this story and I was really like pouring it out in detail, the moment that I had entered into the room with this scratchy rug I was transported. And because my recall is so great, I suddenly was able to remember conversations, remember the emotions, remember sounds around me, remember the feelings of dissociation. It came at me very, very intensely. And the whole book was like that for me as Mm -hmm. I started to, because in a book you have to get into, you have to paint the picture, give the details, but those details spun me into recall. And so when I knew that I was going to have to read from this book, I decided I did not want to ever mention, I didn't want to talk about the scratchiness of the the carpet, although I am now. (laughs) And so I decided that again, I have this choice. That rug is now going to be soft. That Mm -hmm. rug, every time I read that, that rug is going to be soft. So it doesn't propel me into that I wish I knew that term, psychological recall, something recall. So for some, journal writing is very difficult because like me, it pulls them into the senses, the sights, the smells, all of that, and it becomes too painful. For some people, it's painting is what allows them to express their emotions. For other people, it could be something that's not as direct, like the practice of yoga or meditation or other things, going into nature. There's so many different mm-hmm. ways in which we can process the experience. Yeah. But journaling is definitely one of them. I find that personally the deepest and the most challenging. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about the writing of the book and some of the stories in the book. The book is called Revolution of the Soul, for those who don't know or have it yet. Highly recommend it. And I do want to talk about some of those stories that you share in the book. One of them is where you talk about the, you're kind of coming out of that initial beginner high of yoga bliss, 
like everything was feeling great. And then some stuff is starting to come to the surface. And if I can quote you from the book, you say, even though I still enjoyed periods of contentment as my yoga practice deepened, I would get flashes of awareness in the quiet moments of meditation that were uncomfortable and disturbing. Thoughts of my childhood would suddenly arise seemingly out of nowhere. And then you go on to say, was yoga suddenly messing with me? Why was all the breathing, moving, and sitting, stirring old shit up? Shit that I hadn't thought about for years. Maybe you can share a little bit about what was starting to come up. And also, you mention in the next line or so that the teacher had warned you, like, this could happen. Stuff could start coming up. And I was curious because a lot of folks who listen to the, the podcast are yoga teachers themselves. Are you glad that you had got that warning that stuff can start to come up in yoga? Do you warn your students? Like, What's your perspective as the teacher? As a teacher, yes, I'm glad I got that warning. And definitely I let people know in classes. It's the phenomenon of the practice, whether the teacher is even talking about trauma When you move and breathe and your body is finally ready to release that long-held tension, tension that is often caused by suppressed emotion, stuff comes up on the mat. And at that point, it can take a student by surprise, scare them, confuse them, think that they're doing something wrong or that yoga is not for them. I think it's very important to normalize the mind-body connection and the phenomenon of discharge, of energetic release. When I first started practicing yoga, my practice was very physical for the first, I'd say, almost eight years. It was not spiritual. It was not emotional. I did it solely for the health and the wellness. If a teacher talked about God, I just tuned out. I'd hear other people going, having emotional responses on the mat. I didn't understand it. I just figured they were having a bad day. I didn't associate it necessarily with the yoga. For me, it was just a matter of getting stronger and more flexible. But then a shift started to happen as I explore in the book. I just, these memories kept coming up. And what would happen in the yoga practice is then I'd start to fidget. I'd look around. I would project onto the teacher, you know, like, oh my God, when are they going to get us out of this pose? They're making me feel uncomfortable. All of the ways in which we avoid what actually might be arising. What I learned from my own experience was that it took about eight years of really hardcore physical practice to release the layers and layers of armored tension that cloaked my body, tension that I relied on for control and for protection and for safety. And the practice just slowly chipped away, chipped away until one day, my nervous system was titrated and regulated enough that the deep-held emotion that was at the root of this contraction finally had an opportunity to release itself. And in that chapter of the book, I'm available and ready for this. Even though it freaked me out, I was also simultaneously aware that it needed to come out it needed to pass through. And so I allowed Mm. it. And this is what happens to students for all of us. We're addicted to the tension. We're addicted to that, that contraction. And then when we practice yoga, 
the very nature of the practice is releasing that tension and it can cause feelings that are uncomfortable. I'm sorry. I don't know if you can hear Charlie right now barking yes, away. Yes, and he's lovely. Hi, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Probably hears a squirrel out there and his instinct is to destroy. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that won't happen. Anyway, when we move and stretch and breathe, that contraction becomes expansion and the energy that lives within our musculature rises to the surface. So let me explain it in this way. As we've been taught, there is no separation between the mind and the body. Everything is connected. Trauma is defined as anything that overwhelms our capacity to cope and leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, out of control, or unable to respond. Trauma lives on a spectrum. So very often people think their events aren't quite traumatic enough, and so they discount them as not being trauma. There's shock trauma, acute trauma, and then there's also developmental trauma. Shock trauma are those one-offs. Normally they're, you know, they can be these one-off moments like war, violence, rape, murder, witnessing uh, violence. But it can also be death of a loved one. It can also be finding out your, your partner is cheating on you. But these moments that just pull the rug out from underneath us. When people think of trauma, they often think of it as that, and it's called big T trauma. Often the trauma that I talk about and I reference in class is developmental trauma. And these are the traumas that happen when we're young, when we're children, that before we really have words, to explain our big feelings. And it can include death of loved one. It can include divorce, but it can also include things like bullying, for example. When anyone experiences trauma, there is a biological reaction. Your nervous system, you experience a trauma, your body contracts, signals are sent to the brain, stress hormones are released like cortisol and adrenaline into the body. The nervous system is impacted. It goes into fight, flight, freeze, or collapse. And in that moment of fight, flight, freeze, or collapse, and that contraction happens, the narrative and the emotions of that trauma, that can include fear. It can include uh, rage. It can include grief. It can include shame or guilt. Those shadow emotions are energy. Energy is defined as vibration with information. So there's gross energy. That's like my couch or a mug, something you can see. But there's also subtle energy. And subtle energy is something that we can't see, but we can feel. And it includes these shadow emotions. So it's a resonance. It's a literal vibration. It now lives in the body. And It forms as what's called in yoga, some scars, which are mental impressions that form our identity, that influence our perception. And if we were raised in an environment where whoever is caretaking you realizes that something has happened that has overwhelmed you, you're scared or sad, they might give you an opportunity to discharge the energy to discharge, to release the resonance of the fear, the resonance of the anger. They might invite you to cry, rage, beat a pillow, use whatever language you want to use, whatever they can do to help to complete the process of overwhelm. In our culture, at least in my upbringing, we're not necessarily taught that. At best, 
if we're upset or scared or overwhelmed, maybe our caretakers might say like, oh, you're scared here. Let's go shopping. I'll buy you a present. Or you're angry. Let's bake some cookies. We're taught to self-soothe using external stimulation like food or like other kinds of rewards. Therefore, the emotion is never really reconciled. It's just masked or numbed. And because it's cumulative, it means that every single time after that original experience, I have a moment that within the unconscious reminds me of that assault or insult or whatever that trauma was, my body out of self-preservation will contract and contract and contract each time. That contraction is tension. Tension, stress, and anxiety are the number one causes of both emotional and physiological lack of wellness, you know, sickness, disease, if you will. And so the discharging of that emotional resonance helps us to release the anxiety, release the tension, release the stress. But like I said, our culture doesn't do that well. Maybe it's getting better now, but certainly when I was young, it was not. And so over the years, the self-soothing coping mechanisms just become a little bit more sophisticated. You know, the cookies become the alcohol, Mm -hmm. the present becomes the sex or becomes the gambling or becomes the, you know, whatever it might be to constantly fill that void, to change the way that we feel. Or when I get triggered, I might rage at someone out of proportion to what perhaps was the the trigger, because at least that raging, it feels good in the moment because it's allowing me to discharge the anger that I feel inside. That's actually anger that hasn't been reconciled since perhaps I was six. Mm -hmm. And so that tension becomes more and more embedded within us and we get accustomed to it. For me, that tension was, it kept me in control. It kept me safe. It kept me hypervigilant. It helped me to be aware if there was any danger or so I thought of danger being around me. So what yoga did is it messed with all of that because I would get on the mat and after my body was chipping away at the years of contraction, it started to hit the emotion that was at the root of that tension, the fear, the anger, and really what was underneath all of that, the grief. And so for a while, what was happening in my yoga practice is I was getting uncomfortable. I would fidget, I'd look around, I'd project onto the teacher, I'd fantasize, I'd dissociate. And I think like, why isn't my yoga working anymore? Like I used Mm -hmm. to really love to come into the class. Now I'm just annoyed or checked out or bored. But all of this was my unconscious dissociating. My nervous system was saying, danger, danger, you're getting too close to the core. You need to find ways to escape these feelings. So it was either project onto the teacher, get angry at the teacher, or completely shut down until that class that I write about in the book, where the aggravation, I'm projecting on the person next to me. I'm judging them. I'm judging the teacher. I'm just getting more and more annoyed at everything. And then my body started to shake little tremors in my hands that felt it was, it wasn't like 
people would look at me and I'm having these violent shakes, but they were physical tremors that I could look at my hand and be like, I am shaking. Why am I shaking? What is happening to my body? And I could feel this well, this, all this emotion coming up and up. And for the first time on the mat, I couldn't dissociate from it. And I had to leave the room and had one of the most intense emotional releases that I had ever had in my life that was both terrifying and utterly relieving. My body ached for this release for, you know, at that time, 20, 20 years. It had held on because I'm, I'm a survivor and I'm resilient and I'm strong and I'm focused, all that stuff. That's amazing. And it was also masking the deep vulnerability and the fear I held in my body. And that class allowed it to release. And I literally shook it out of me, cried it out of me. And then when I went back into the room, I heard everything differently. It was as if the teacher was speaking only to me. It was as if they were reading my mind and knew exactly what I had just experienced. Mind you, that teacher had been saying the same stuff for years, but my awareness wasn't available to it, didn't hear it, didn't associate with it, relate to it until I did. And then in that same class, I was flooded with memory. As I held the poses, the poses targeted different areas of my body that held on to different parts of the narrative. And the sensation was suddenly so intense. But if I stayed with the sensation, suddenly my body would open to it and I'd have this release of both emotional and physiological tension. It was something that suddenly, not in that class, but later I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's what, that's why people were crying in class. Mm, yeah. That's why their body was releasing old stagnant energy. They didn't even need to know what the story was. They were just allowing space for it to be like, okay, just move through, just move through. So I know that that was a very long answer to the question, but I wanted to give some context to what we're talking about and to my experience and to what I've witnessed countless times over the years, maybe not to that dramatic degree, but when I see it, I certainly know how to speak to it. And most importantly, normalize it Mm -hmm. because the mind and body are connected. The body remembers everything. The tension is part of our survival mechanism. The central nervous system is deeply impacted by the practice of yoga. And as much as we can release the tension and aggravate the central nervous system in yoga, we can also call back the parasympathetic nervous system and find the tools to be able to resource so that we can manage the big feelings, get really present to it without dissociation, and in time, find the grace, find the deeper meaning, if you will, find the freedom from it. And that is what yoga gave Mm. to me. That's pretty big. And you've gone on to give that to so many others and, you know, create space and the opportunity for students to release if that's what's needed for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was just a part of the inevitability of my own journey. Not right away. You know, I had to figure out what the hell was going on. I simultaneously worked with a therapist. I'd been working in therapy since I was 18 years old. I mean, I was very well aware 
I never didn't have memory of trauma. This was something that was understood within me and, and certainly within members of my family. It's something that I sought support for at a very young age, at 18, but it was all from the neck up. No therapist at that time had helped me understand that it was in my body. So I could tell you how I feel. I could tell you my story, but I wouldn't actually feel it, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't until I got into yoga where it was no longer intellectual. It was a felt experience. And my tapping into my vulnerability was so terrifying because when I experienced molestation, I was six years old. You're nothing but a bundle of vulnerability when you're that age. On every single level, you rely on everyone around you for your safety and for your survival. And so what I learned early that was that vulnerability is not safe. Mm. And so the yoga practice, part of the inevitable healing is that you have to drop back into that vulnerability and let go of everything that you think you know, have to let go of control. And when your nervous system says that that equals not just danger, but in some cases death, that doesn't sound like a good place to be. And so I had to get really comfortable with that vulnerability. And it was yoga that allowed me to tap into my grief in a safe way. And it was therapy that allowed me to understand and put words to that grief. So the two practices was what was medicine for me. I don't think that yoga, unless you have an incredibly skilled yoga teacher, I don't think that yoga alone is the medicine, nor do I think Therapy alone is the medicine. For me, the, the two together was like, I watched my life transform and relatively quickly. Like, it's just like everyday insights and a level of acceptance. I was no longer freaked out or surprised. I was like, oh, of course, of course, this is what I'm going to have to confront. And I know how to stay present. I know how to stay resourced. I know how to stay in my body. I know how to forgive myself. I know how to forgive others tools were given to me during this period. And as I got more comfortable and excited about this process, I felt more capable of holding space for others and inviting, not necessarily inviting them, but like I said before, normalizing it, shining a light on it, acknowledging it, not making it weird or bad or wrong or flawed, but letting them know that dissociation is a natural part of the healing process. So is reactivity. Mm -hmm. It's the detox, but witness it, witness it on the mat, watch when it comes up in, in life, acknowledge it and unpack it. But I don't shame any part of the yoga practice. It's messy. It's complex. It's deeply unique for each soul. It's incredibly brave. It's unbearably vulnerable. It's sometimes boring. You sometimes hit these just flat plateaus, but all of it is for me, integration, expansion, integration, expansion. It's like when I hit those plateaus in my practice now where I'm like, oh, there's no new insight. It's flat. My body's not changing. My mind's not changing. My life's not changing. In the past, when I was a younger student, I would think I was doing something wrong. Now I look at it as integration that my nervous system is saying enough. Now we're just going to take the time to integrate everything that's been learned. There's going to be no new information, no new insight, no new shifts, not yet. Until the nervous system titrates, regulates itself, then 
all of a sudden after that, my body is ready to go and my mind is ready to go to another realm of mm. awareness. And so I always look at those like plateaus in the practice that a lot of students just, they're like, oh, my yoga is not working anymore. I always think, well, just wait, just get on your mat. Just keep doing the practice. Don't even think about it. I actually had that as a, a question for you because even after practicing so many years, have you noticed a cycle in yourself? Like, is there a kind of a, like a rhythm amount of months or periods where things are feeling like stuff is happening again? And then those, those kind of plateau periods, have you noticed how long they last? Is it the same or does it change? It changes all the time. I don't even really give it a lot of thought. It's just, I just get on the mat and practice. Mm -hmm. And then there are these shifts that like, oh, look at that. I'm in a really, like I'm in a big shift cycle now and have been actually for a few years. And it's amazing. It's interesting, especially coming through the lens of an almost 56 year old woman. I just perceive it completely differently. And I imagine what would this have felt like at 25? It would have felt in some ways like a little death. It's because it's a shift in identity. Mm. Now I'm just really present to that. I'm in this transformative part of my practice after years of it being just kind of in a, in a plateau, which I didn't mind. I just liked practicing. I, you know, and I had thought like, well, I guess, you know, no major revelations are going to happen. And then it was like, oh, really? Mm. <laughs> like, okay, here we are. And I think that's really, really valuable information, you know, for, for listeners to take in and even like for me to hear, you know, because it can be boring. <laughs> you know, yeah. It can feel mm -hmm. like nothing's happening. Yep. It can feel like maybe I should be doing something else or this doesn't work anymore. You know, so many of those thoughts can come up again and again in a lifetime of practice. Completely. I, you know, I think that that's why my commitment has always been to demystify the practice of yoga. Sometimes we have this, just some magical thinking around the practice that every time we get on the mat, it's just going to be all like, you know, rainbows and unicorns. And sometimes I'm just staring at the floor thinking about the dust bunnies that are collecting underneath my couch yeah. and completely disconnected. And then 10 weeks later, I'm having these ecstat an ecstatic experience in my body and just feel overwhelmed with gratitude. Yeah. So in my experience, it just has its own rhythm. Any life-changing moment when my dad died, for example, the pandemic, those moments I've gone into deep, deep shifts in awareness. Like my practice was needed more than ever and the insights were quite intense. So usually milestone moments can certainly kick the dirt up around me. But I don't think I have an attachment to it. I just trust the practice this way and normalize that whatever is happening is really true to the moment. Just get on the mat whenever you can, even if it's for 20 minutes, move the tension, move the energy. Because I know that when I don't practice, the tension that accumulates in my body is so familiar that it actually in some ways feels good. And mm -hmm. before I know it, I'm you know, bitching at my partner or I'm flipping someone off on the road, you know, because they cut me off. I'm falling back into old behaviors that feel right, feel righteous. Mm -hmm. But that's power over because in truth, I'm tapping into that part of my consciousness that actually feels insecure or scared, power under, and I'm trying to compensate and will fall back into old patterns. Mm. And so that's why when I get on the mat, 
I've often used this, said this as a joke, you know, it takes me two and a half hours of yoga a day just to be somewhat kind of pleasant. And I mean, even though it's a joke, there is truth to it. When I move and breathe and release just a little bit of the tension, I feel different. And when I feel different, it reminds me of who I am. And when I'm reminded of who I am, then I see you differently. And when I see you differently, I respond to the world with more compassion and more love. Mm. And if that is what I can accomplish each and every day, then my yoga is working. Well, that's it. (laughs) I mean, that's the big picture. And I I actually, I want to go back. I want to kind of put a bookmark in this part of the conversation, because I do want to ask you about maybe some of your more recent revelations, if you're open to speaking to them and kind of where your edges are. And but I want to leave that a little bit to the end. I just want to ask you a couple more questions about sure. advice to maybe to teachers, just because I, I heard you speak a lot and I think there's so much to reference. You have such a body of work and just in preparing today, I listened to, uh, listened to on soul feed. So, Hey, to Shannon <laughs> and mm-hmm. a mutual friend and, um, on being. So I think like folks, I was trying to think of like things I can ask Sean that maybe I haven't heard as much. And this is probably out there too, but I'm wondering just going a bit back to the, the experience that you were describing when you were in pigeon pose and you had this emotional release. And because I, I teach so many teachers in trauma sensitivity. Oh gosh, I have a couple questions around this. One sort of is you just had so you had the therapy already and you knew it was happening. I wonder if in your experience teaching other yoga teachers and being around them, sort of if we're giving yoga teachers enough tools to hold space for the releases that can happen in, in a yoga class. And also in your specific case, I know that the teacher touched you, which is something we would normally tell like in trauma sensitive, if you see a student crying, maybe not to touch, like how, Mm -hmm. how would you respond? Do you think that, and maybe the pendulum is going the other way because in being in the trauma sensitive yoga space, there's a lot of talk these days. We're so afraid to quote unquote trigger our students where, you know, are we protecting them too much from release? So I know that was a big question with a lot of parts, but maybe you can speak to some of that. I think that you, everything that you're, that you're asking me is excellent. I do believe that anyone who wants to become a teacher should have some form of trauma-informed or sensitive training. It's essential for their own practice. It's critical. They should understand what it feels like in their own body. They should really consider the, like, I know what happens to me when I'm triggered. I know what it looks like on my face. I know the signs and the symbols that indicate that I'm no longer in present time. Why that's helpful is that if I see those, some of those qualities exhibited in someone else, it allows me not to personalize it. Like if someone's checking the phone or they're staring off into space, it's not like, oh, I'm a bad teacher. They're bored, they're not paying attention. I might think like, oh, that student might be at capacity. They might be checking out. Interesting. How do I get them back into the space? And there's a lot of different ways in which people respond to being triggered in any way. And remember that trauma lives on that spectrum. You know, it's what's traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you and vice versa. So I do believe that teachers should have that knowledge and skill within their own body as well as how to 
manage a room. I also, to your point, think that it can put us as teachers so fearful of triggering a student that not everyone in that room is having the same experience. They want to be pushed. They want to go to their edges. But if we're presuming that everyone in this room is having the same kind of trauma response, it's difficult then to be intuitive. And I think that's the word I want to use for teachers. For me, I have the skills and the training, but like any kind of art, you want to have the technique and then throw it away and allow for intuition to come through. Certain students you do not touch, certain students need it. Sometimes, like for example, if I get a sense that a student in the room is having an an emotional response to something that I've said, I might just check in. I might come by them, you know, see if I can get some eye contact and just kind of like nod, you know, just mouth, you okay? Just to have a moment. I might sit near them, but with my back to them and talk generally to the whole class to normalize just what can happen as we release tension, as stuff comes up near enough to them so that they know that I know that I am simply an arm's length away if they need something, but I'm also not going to hover over them or witness them. So to make them uncomfortable or like a turtle into its shell, Mm -hmm. you know, like retreat. So when I'm at the point of a class when, where the information that I'm giving You know, after you're moving and breathing and you're doing the warrior twos and the extended side angles and you're releasing energy, it's after that, when you start to maybe read that poem or plant a seed or talk about forgiveness, that the student starts to get activated because the body has released the physiological tension Mm -hmm. and they're more available. They're hearing differently. In those moments, I don't stand up. I sit down. I try to get my vocal tones more, a little bit softer, a little bit more monotone, if you will, more paste and have my tones meet them almost at ear level rather than being above them, which is a more threatening, dominating, authoritative energy. So there are certain things that I do as a teacher, certain skills that I utilize that is mindful of what might be happening in the room to create a feeling of, to the best of my ability, of safety, of unity, of compassion, of thoughtfulness. But these are skills that I've learned over the many years that have been passed down to me, but that are intuitive. But the reason that I can use my intuition is because I have done the work personally and continue to do the work personally related to trauma so that it's not theoretical Mm -hmm. to me. It's experiential. And so for teachers, developing these skills for themselves, being planting seeds in the room and then observing, keeping it simple, staying in their lane, meaning like, don't start talking about like what your dead dad did to you, you know, 30 years ago, if you can't hold the emotional response to that. Do you know what I mean? Like, know what you can handle. With that said, sometimes stuff comes up in the room that you're not prepared for. That certainly happened to me where I'm thinking to myself, this is outside of my level of experience. I have no idea how to handle this. 
that has happened in my experience as a yoga teacher and you do your best, but the simpler you can keep Mm -hmm. it, the more responsible you are about what it is that you might be kind of igniting. But I really do, to any teacher that is listening to this, we are at a profound time in our life where we are experiencing both individual and collective trauma. And the impact of that is literally shaking us at our foundation because it connects us right to that first chakra, home, safety, family, security. It's our foundation that has been fractured. This divide in which we feel is real and all of us in one way or another are contributing to that sense of separation, which is antithetical to the practice of yoga. And knowing that this collective trauma exists, we know then that without tools, the response to this trauma is to act out. It's reactivity, it's rage, it's denial, it's drinking, it's drugs, it's all the things. So yoga teachers right now are more essential than ever to acknowledge the trauma that exists in the planet, what the normal response to this trauma might be when we don't have tools for resources, what the tools for resources are, and the space of discomfort that as we approach these tools and eradicate our habits, what those that space of discomfort might feel like in the body until we can transcend it, and what the reward, if you will, might be, which is understanding your true self being more compassionate to you and then therefore to others and feeling that responsibility within yourself to do everything that you can to heal that divide through your own words and actions and deeds. And so this is a very important time because trauma is not just a catchword. It has been in our consciousness forever. It's just being excavated and named And so for yoga teachers, we have to be willing to understand the impact of trauma, the myriad of ways that it shows up, and how the yoga practice can help to provide resources, and how the yoga practice and our own teaching can actually create harm when we're not really aware of the impact that the practice can have or our words can have on someone's dysregulation. Does that make sense, what I said? Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is the speech we need to hear. (laughs) Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. This is the time that we're in. And it is a profound time. And as you really laid out for us earlier in our conversation, yoga can really shift things and have a profound impact on our students and on ourselves. And one of the things that I'm hearing you say in what you just spoke so eloquently to yoga teachers is, you know, make sure we're doing our own work, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes the first thing that happens when you start teaching is stop doing your own practice and your own work. And it's easy to do that. I feel like, okay, I taught class, I was doing yoga, which we're not, right? We are not doing yoga when we're teaching class. I'll give you an example of that. That's, you know, more in present time. So when prior to the pandemic, As many of us as yoga teachers, you know, we understood, we saw the trajectory of our work. We had our careers planned out. I, for myself, I knew my identity in regards to being a traveling yoga teacher. 
I knew what my role was, what the expectations were, and how to meet the moment. When the pandemic hit, of course, me, like everybody else, the traveling stopped. And I sat with it at first and I was like, who? This is interesting. What's coming up for me? And at first it was fear related to basically survival, my like finances. Like, well, how is I going to pay the, you know, how is I going to pay my bills? The logical part of my mind was like, wait a second, you're fine. You've got money saved. You have a family. You have resources. You could be out of work for a couple of years and you're okay. So that's not what's coming up. All right. I had to like take that, that first thing, that very practical thing, like, oh, well, how am I going to like survive that? Take that off the table. That's not what the issue is here. What's coming up? What's really like, what are you feeling in your body? And what came up for me was identity. I mm. don't know. I didn't know who am I if I'm not teaching, if I'm not on the road, if I'm not impacting thousands of people, if I'm not speaking. My whole life is speaking. My sense of self at the time, what I was observing was like, oh, I had no idea the depths of my attachment to that part of my identity. I am loved and I am valued when I show up and teach. And arguably, there's no one who showed up harder and taught more than me. I mean, I've been on the road for two and a half decades, um, committed to this work, but never really stopped to look at how much of my identity was attached to being that hardworking person, to always showing up, to always being that one that could hold space. I felt mm -hmm. an obligation to it. Now the obligation is gone. It's over. And I remember saying to myself, like, I wanted to be there for the community. I taught, you know, once a week, a, a prayer-based class just to help. But I thought, I need to stop teaching. I need to stop altogether and process this because my unconscious, that what it meant then is, was, was I actually teaching authentically to where I was in my life or was I leaning into what was expected of me based on this identity? Now, I wasn't aware of any of this, just so you know. It wasn't until the pandemic happened where I started to experience a panic, anxiety, which is not part of my um, personality, where I had to say, like, what's the core of this? So it was ego. And so I made the determination that I was not going to teach, except for that once a week class, that instead I was going to start from scratch, that I was going to begin with the sutras. I was going to study with different teachers, all online, of course, like everybody else, that I was going to go back to the very beginning and read the sacred texts, but from a new lens, from the lens of being someone who's at, you know, at that time in my earlier fifties, well, no, my mid fifties, who am I now? What do I want to teach now? What's happening in the world now? What is my actual relationship to it? What do I believe? And that couldn't have happened unless the world stopped the way that it did. And unless I had, was forced to get off the road, because the truth is I probably never would have, because I am a workhorse and I know my purpose, or at the time I knew my purpose and my purpose to serve in the way that I was, but it was also being driven by something, an undercurrent of something, a shadow that I hadn't identified. And so I took 
almost an entire year off of doing any kind of hardcore teaching so that I could reinvest in my emotional, physical practice and meet the 50 plus year old person that I am and reevaluate, well, how do I want to teach now? How do I want to serve now? What is actually authentic to me and not a part of the shadow? What needs to die? And in that dying, there is grief, but something cannot be reborn unless something is eliminated. And I wanted to be really present to the attachments that I had to some of, of those particular narratives related to my teaching. And it's something that I believe now this never ends. Yeah, I was just going to say that. It never, ever ends if you're really doing the practice. And I want to encourage every teacher out there, do not get attached to the way in which you're teaching now. Let it change. Let Mm -hmm. it evolve. Let it grow. Be present to the discomfort of that, of what that might mean. What, What might change? My teaching going forward will be different. I've learned much about the yoga community in the last couple of years based on this pandemic. I've learned about my role within it on a public level. And I've had to suffer with people's projection of me, both good and bad, living up to expectations, both good and bad, and looking at what is the responsibility of someone my age with the experience that I have had to support and help other yoga teachers going forward and to hold a mirror up to them so they can experience the places within themselves that are disconnected from God and all the ways in which their own limiting beliefs are blocking them from sharing their own unique truths because of the attachment that they have to their own identity in this moment. And so what I'm hoping that anyone who's listening to this is getting that this is a time for deep humility, honesty, transparency, pulling the veil back, allowing space for the messiness, getting the resources that you need, trusting your own resiliency, letting yourself fall apart again and again and again, trusting that there is something big that is evolving within each and every one of us that needs space to be heard. And the way in which I hear it is on that yoga mat, is in the office of someone more skilled than I am to hold space for trauma and limiting beliefs and some scars and can help reshape my perspective and give me the words or help me to uncover the words so that I can describe my experiences from a, that, that felt knowing rather than intellectual. And this is what I hope for all teachers. Don't get attached to who you think you are in this moment as a yoga teacher. Let it evolve. And that's what's been happening to me these past couple of years. And it's been painful and so exciting. Hmm. I'm more excited. I'm chomping at the bit, if you will, to get in a space where I can stand in the presence of other people and really let loose. Hmm. You know, that hasn't happened in a while. Like, I just feel like I'm a racehorse someone's holding the reins. I'm not quite ready. I'm not quite ready. But when I am, I cannot wait to see what moves through me. But like I said earlier, intuition is a skill. I didn't actually didn't say this, but intuition is a skill. It's not a gift. What I said earlier was that 
in doing trauma-informed work and working with students, it requires intuition, but intuition that is grounded in skill. And so right now I feel that I am developing new skills that when I do get in front of, you know, bigger um, groups of people, how those skills are going to inform my intuitive knowing now feels like it will be an incredibly creative release and one I look forward to. Wow. Okay. I hope to be one of the first people (laughs) at that class. That sounds really big and it's just beautiful to hear. It reminds me of the way we were talking about the yoga practice itself. You know, there's this times for integration and going in and then there's this times for expansion. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, for me, it's always important for me to remember, remind myself and hear stories from others Mm -hmm. um, who I admire like yourself, that it's like, it's not just, it's not an up, up, up trajectory. I mean, I know that, but it's like this re-knowing, you know, that there's, there's this kind of spiraling and pulling in and coming out. It's just beautiful to hear your personal and most recent account with that. I can, I mean, I'm, also, and many of us are right experiencing that as we go through this pandemic and all the challenges that we're facing right now are causing a, many of us to deeply reevaluate mm-hmm. our lives in what could be a really good and transformative way if we can allow ourselves to really to be in the breakdown part of it, right? Yep. To be because it is yeah. a breakdown, and there's a level of performance a hierarchy that exists within the teaching of yoga that I personally want to see dismantled. This is not the time. It's exhausting. I don't want to be spoken at. I want to be spoken to. I don't want to presume that just because someone can't touch their toes, that they're incapable of already having a strong, like a level of emotional and spiritual maturity. I think that we need to share experiences, be really transparent and honest and take away this performative nature as if somehow as teachers were above it. I mean, I've always pushed back against that. I've always tried to be really um, transparent as a teacher. I've always tried not to buy my hype. When I came up as a yoga teacher, there was no celebrity yoga teachers in that way. It didn't exist. There was a couple, but there were men and doing some DVDs. It wasn't the same. And when it happened, I knew, I thought, oh, this is a trap. This is the thing that's totally going to trip me up if I buy into this. And so I fought it and fought it and fought it. And it might be coming from New Jersey and, and coming from a more blue collar background, you know, where you don't buy that hype. You don't, you don't do that. If you do, someone's bound to smack you in the head. But yet, as the social media expanded, I saw people craving, addicting this celebrity, this attention, this hierarchy, this glamour. And again, I've, I've lived it for decades. And so I understand the seduction of it, but I also understand the shadow of it. And I'm hoping that as we go forward, that that changes a little bit. And I intend to try to model that to the best of my own ability to be really humble and open and give, give, give everything that I've learned. I will give it away, not covet any of it, not covet my prayers, not covet my sequences, not covet anything as if I own it. I feel that we have an obligation to really share and serve what really share what has worked for us and serve the people 
who might be attracted to our particular medicine and uplift other teachers who have different kinds of medicine that might mm. also serve that student. You're bringing me to tears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you really are. You really are. It's, it, has, it has to be different. There's a repair yeah. that needs to be made in the wellness yeah. world because of COVID and because of the anti-vax movement, because of politics, because of so much that has happened. There's a divide within our community. There's repair that needs to happen. I don't know how that repair happens. I think about that all the time within my own heart, but I also know what needs to be modeled. And I don't even know if I'm capable of it personally. I just know within my consciousness what I strive for. Humility, presence, compassion, honesty, transparency, support, generosity. These are the things that will drive my teaching going forward. Mm. Well, I think they have already. I I suspect that it's being revealed to you again, maybe at a deeper level, but, and it may feel like, wow, I haven't been, I'll just speak from my own experience. Like I know sometimes when those things are re-revealed at a deeper level, it's like, have I been doing that? Have I forgotten that? But I think those words that you're describing, Sean, have always been there and perhaps you're, you know, you're feeling the next level of them. So I appreciate that, but also don't want to discount what you've done previously. And thank you. (laughs) yeah, it's just a deepening and deepening. Yeah. I wonder if um, we could talk actually a couple of minutes about some of the maybe subtler practices in yoga. One thing I wanted to touch upon briefly is a little bit about breathing. I know you mentioned in the book that how important it was to remember to come back to uh, breath and oh, breath, the, the quote that your teacher said was breathe and everything changes. Yeah. And I wondered if I just wanted to ask you on a technical end, you know, if there were certain kinds of breath or ways of focusing on the breath that help the practice and the trauma release. And again, and it really relates to where we are in the conversation in the sense that if we're here, we can breathe, right? So someone can have very, very subtle, deep connection to breath that, you know, and that, and they could be very deep in their practice, right? And they can't touch their toes, but they have this incredible ability to work with the breath. So I wondered if you'd share some insights on breath work and then maybe a little bit about chakras as well. I know, I don't know how much time you have. I know we've been talking for a little bit, but my time working with you on the chakras, I felt like that was a real skill of yours. Mm -hmm. And I I know you have a workshop on that coming up. This will probably air before that, but hopefully there's more and more teachings around the chakras that you'll be sharing with us. Yeah. 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 Chakras, that changed my life. It gave me that bridge between the physical body and the subtle body and a language to help me to understand where in the body held we held narratives. I'll talk about that in a moment. The breath is an absolute essential part of the healing process for all of us, of course, if we want to survive and thrive in this world. But for trauma-informed practices, for me, In the book, I talk about part of my response to trauma was obsessive compulsive disorder. I was obsessed with the numbers fours and eights and had to do things in patterns. The reason I did this was because those patterns helped me feel in control. The sensation in my body when I would do these patterns would help my nervous system to regulate. Of course, I didn't know this at the time. It was a survival mechanism to self-soothe. 
before I had drugs or alcohol, you know, and even when I got into drugs and alcohol, the patterning just got worse, you know, in a lot of ways. And they were also associated with superstition that if I didn't do the patterns, someone would die, that God would do something bad to someone that I loved. And so there was a real sense of playing God and a paranoia, spiritual paranoia. And in the book, I talk about being in a yoga class and the teacher hit one of my feet when they walked by while I was in downward dog. And I started having an anxiety attack because I needed him to hit my other foot and to balance me out. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. Just was running in my head. And I was fantasizing about what I can do as soon as class was over. I was the queen at like Pratt Falls. Like if someone knocked into me, I was the queen of like tripping so that I would then knock into them with the other side of my body Mm. to find that balance. And I kept thinking like, okay, when I leave to say goodbye, I can, you know, trip and hit that left foot with his opposite foot. Then I'll be imbalanced. And then that teacher said these life-changing words, breathe and everything changes. And I took a very deep breath. Nothing changed. I did it again, deep breath in, exhaled it out. Nothing changed. And actually the anxiety got worse. My heart rate went up. I started feeling really jittery. And then I don't know if it was the fifth breath, the 10th breath. I don't know how many breaths it was, but there was a breath that changed everything. My body relaxed. The thoughts diminished. The obsession just waned. And I was able to leave the studio without, you know, tripping and having to, you know, make a fool of myself for the hundredth millionth time. And no one died. And like sat with that all day long, like, wow, that never happened. I never broke a pattern before. And it was the breath that let me break the pattern. And I started to experiment with it afterwards. And what I noticed, and I I keep drawing your attention to this specifically, was what I noticed was that at first, the deep breathing actually triggered me more. It Mm -hmm. caused anxiety. It caused feelings of panic panic that I knew I can make better if I just did the thing. But the more I waited and kept breathing, it had an impact on what I know now, the vagus nerve, which runs from the brainstem through the body, that one of the ways in which we can tone the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve communicates with the heart, the lungs, the guts, and it activates the sympathetic part of our nervous system, which puts us in fight or flight. But it's when you regulate it, it impacts the parasympathetic nervous system, which puts you in rest and digest. And by breathing deeply, by chanting, by practicing yoga, by practicing meditation, it has an effect on the central nervous system in a variety of different ways, but definitely through the vagus nerve And it's a physiological response. It's not magical thinking, but for some of us, like myself, who is, I am a chronic dissociator. That's how I respond to my trauma. When I'm in dissociation, my heartbeat slows down dramatically. My breathing slows down dramatically to the point where there's huge pauses between my inhale and the exhale. To the outside eye, I look calm, 
grounded, present. I'm just completely checked out. When I breathe deeply, it can cause me to fall into dissociative patterns. And conversely, when I breathe, when pranayama is too fast, it can cause feelings of panic because my breathing is associated with my trauma, if that makes sense, as it is with a lot of people in trauma. Even the sound of breath, they can imagine the sound of their breath. They can imagine the patternings of the breath when they were experiencing the trauma. So the breathing itself can be a trigger. Do you get what I'm yeah. saying? Oh, yeah. So it's important that for some, deep, deep breathing can actually be a trigger. For some, fast breathing can be a trigger. For some, fast breathing is a healing component. And for some, deep breathing is a healing component. For me, I had to not get too, I had to be careful about breath retention. So I could breathe in four counts, breathe out eight counts, no breath retention, breathe in four, exhale eight. That was what I did for my nervous system that it could handle it until I could then eventually bring in breath retention without going into dissociative patterns. It took me a long time before I could do things like Kabalibati breathing. That was a total trigger for me personally. Couldn't do it. Now I can do it, but for a long time I couldn't. So deep breathing helps the vagus nerve to regulate, which then kicks in the parasympathetic nervous response. It is a biological reaction to the breath work that we do that literally changes our mind. And so that's the one thing that I'll say about breathing and that it's not one size fits all. Yeah. That's why I think in Iyengar practices, they consider pranayama very advanced. Yeah. Even in my own teaching, I'm very conservative when I bring in pranayama because even though it's great for most of the people in the world, I do, I am aware that some people are going to get activated or triggered because of these exercises and that they need to be eased into them a little bit slower. Like I said, four in, eight out, that often, or it could be five in, 10 out. It just depends on someone's lung capacity. Now the chakras, that's a whole other thing. How do I even begin with this? Uh, (laughs) I know. What I will tell you is that the role of the chakra is to distribute prana through the whole of the body. Prana gets stuck in the body because of tension, tension that is often caused by trauma. So I'm, I'm trying to connect the dots. Chakras spin at a very particular rate. Now, what I will also say is that extending off the vagus nerve are nerve ganglias, and in the points of those ganglias are also where is housed a chakra. So when people say that there's really, you know, you, you can't see a chakra, you can only feel it. There is some physiological connection between the ends of these nerve ganglias and where the chakras live within the body. I have found that quite interesting. Yeah. So the chakras spin at a very particular rate and they are impacted by our, both our internal life as well as our external environment. So they're constantly receiving stimuli, information. A chakra gets blocked because of historical trauma, cultural trauma, 
educational, religious, personal abuse. There's all different ways in which the chakra is rendered either deficient, moves too slow, or excessive, moves too fast. It doesn't matter what it does. They just exhibit different personality qualities, traits. But once the chakra is imbalanced, it impacts the rate of prana getting distributed to that area, which can lead then to an imbalance. It can lead to vulnerability in that area because when, as we know from Eastern medicine, that if chi is not running through the nadis, through the channels of the body, it can lead to illness. And so the chakras, if they're not distributing that prana, that area gets stagnant and then is vulnerable to tension, vulnerable to illness. So the connection is, if you understand the individual chakra, the trauma that impacts that chakra, the places in our body that are associated with that chakra, where the the prana is distributed most, what the personality qualities look like, we can then be able to understand the narrative that we're holding onto and what within that narrative needs to be understood and transformed. All right. So for example, the first chakra, which right now, by the way, our entire culture is in a first chakra crisis. First chakra is at, it's at the perineum at the very you know base of the spine. It affects directly the legs. So it includes the knees, the ankles, the feet, the rectum, the lower parts of the intestinal tract. It affects the spinal column. It impacts the teeth, the bones, the solid parts of the body. This chakra is our foundation. It is the root of who we are. It's about family, home, safety, security, our culture, our tribe, if you will. It's the thing that helps us to feel that we are a part of this world. Now, what can block that chakra is things like abandonment, birth trauma, physical neglect, poor bonding with your mother, feeding difficulties, major illness or surgery, physical abuse, violent environments, um, but also inherited trauma. So parents who grew up like with Holocaust or other kinds of genocide, poverty, racism, enslavement, slave owners, lack of education, things like that can block that first chakra. What's happening in our world right now, COVID, racial terrorism, political unrest, oppression, bias, racism, etc. All of that is impacting us right there in that first chakra. When that first chakra is deficient, we might experience as ourselves as dissociated, disconnected to our body, feelings of fear, anxiety, restlessness, poor boundaries, chronic disorganization. When it's excessive, moving too fast, we might experience some hoarding, material fixation, being greedy, sluggish, lazy, tired, having a fear of change, an addiction to security, rigid boundaries. Because of where it affects us in our legs and all the places that I mentioned, it can create vulnerability in our body that can affect our bowels, our intestines. We can experience lower back pain, sciatica, varicose veins, eating disorders, alcoholism, frequent illness, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, immune-related disorders. So 
you can begin to connect the dots. Let's say my obsessive compulsive disorder got kicked up, which it did a little bit in the beginning of the pandemic. I started noticing little things that I was doing again that I was like, oh, like I remember going into therapy, working with my therapist. This is right at the very beginning of the pandemic before we no longer could actually physically go to places. And I walk into my therapist's office and mm-hmm. she had a, this chest of drawers that had hooks on them, like these loops for handles. And all the handles were down except for one. One was up. And I'm talking to her, but I kept averting my eyes over to this cabinet. And I started to track my body and noticed how uncomfortable it was. And I wanted so badly to get up and put that handle down so that they were all facing the exact same direction. And I thought, oh my God, I, and I, I, of course I addressed it immediately because I knew that if that was my body's way of saying that you're experiencing anxiety, you're experiencing something that connects to the root chakra, a lack of safety, a lack of security, this unknown. So I was experiencing that first chakra crisis. And so it gave me some insight rather than acting out, I was like, oh, I need to ground myself. I need to breathe. I need to remind myself of what, like, I need to feel the feelings. They're real. And simultaneously find the skills Mm -hmm. of resource so that I stay in my body. So the chakras can be an excellent way to connect the dots of what else might be going on in your body. Now, I also want to be cautious with this because with chakra work, Sometimes someone who's dealing with a critical illness, let's say breast cancer, for example, might be doing the symbolic work and thinking that they caused their breast cancer because they lacked compassion or weren't willing to forgive an event that happened related to their heart chakra and that they're responsible for the illness that they're carrying. Mm. I don't believe that at all. And it, it is what it is, you know, like you have something, you, you do the, all the allopathic things that need to be happen, all the naturopathic things that happen. Sometimes an illness is an illness. And if it gives you though the space to consider, is there something else that I can work on that might open my heart to love and to forgive? Why not? Why not connect the dots without going into, I made this happen? Because I don't believe that at all. And at the same time, I also do believe that if we're not addressing some of this shutdown, that we also can be available to things like, you know, immune related disorders, or like in my case, obsessive compulsive disorder. So both are true. It's complex. I just always want to put put that caveat when it comes to chakra work, because it always looks like we then created this because we haven't healed our wounds. And I just, I don't, I'm just not someone who wants to subscribe to that kind of thinking. I think it, it can be hurtful and can cause people to stay in a cycle of, of shame and self-blame. So anyway, that's how the chakras can work. And you can go up the yeah. whole entire body from matter into consciousness, looking at things from like the first chakra, home, safety, family, security, second chakra, sexuality, one-on-one relationships, emotions, creativity, sensuality, third chakra, self-esteem, self-confidence, willpower, ego, fourth chakra, compassion, altruism, love, forgiveness, bitterness, rage, 
throat chakra, communication, self-expression, the power of choice, into the third eye, which is intuition, imagination, visions, dreams, and then into the crown chakra, which is really being in direct relationship with the divine and opening ourselves to transcendence. And so each chakra impacts different body parts, holds on to different narratives. The addiction that we have to our narrative and our ego is what prevents us from ascending into the higher realms. And the chakras help us to be able to reframe our narratives, see a bigger spiritual picture to why things happen as they have, and move into our purpose. And usually our purpose is directly related to our trauma. Not always, but often mm-hmm. and in time. Like I always think to myself, like, I know why I'm so skilled at working with children who have been sexually abused, especially ones who err towards dissociation, because it's in my body. It's not something I read about in a book. I can feel into that experience with empathy, where I don't have that, let's say it was domestic violence. I might be able to empathize, sympathize, but I don't necessarily have a direct experience. Not to say that you have to have a direct experience to be in service to anyone at any time, but I really do believe that if that is your experience and you have the capacity and the healing and the support to orient towards that population, there's no one better than you. There's no one more skilled because it comes from something true in your own heart and you know what's on the other side of it, which is freedom. So Anyway, in a nutshell, that's a little bit about what the chakras can do as one of the tools and resources to help to understand and to release the trauma that we hold on to in our bodies. And if people want to study that more with you, like I said, I know you have a workshop coming up. I think it'll be too late. Do you have online membership? Do you have other chakra workshops or... And in general, how can we work with you if we want to take class with you or, yeah. Well, for the past two years, I've been online and I was very strategic about the way I worked online because to what we were talking about earlier, I wanted to study simultaneously to teaching. And so I organized it in such a way to start from the body to philosophy, to the subtle body, to chakras, so that behind the scenes, I could really organize my thoughts, challenge myself, not fall back into old habits. So it's set up in modules. And I am just finishing a chakra immersion, which was trauma, the mind-body connection, the subtle body, and the chakra system. It's an 11-week deep dive that's all available on replay. Mm -hmm. And so, and not just this year, last year, I did the same thing too. So it's there. It's available online if they want to take it. I'll probably do it every year because the thing is, you're different every year. It's a way to really drop in and listen to what's alive in the body, to understand sensation, which is the language of the body, and to understand the association between yoga poses, the chakra system, and our emotional and mental health and wellness. And so I'll do it again live for sure. But if someone wanted to take it now, they could just go to my online courses and take the chakra immersion. Someone, aka me, (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably going to have to do it at like four in the morning or a very strange hour. So I'll probably have to do it already (laughs) recorded. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'll just go 
knocking on your door when I have some questions. <laughs> yeah, but after having that little taste with you, I was like, oh, this is very powerful. I want to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm going to make time for that. Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. As we sort of wrap, um, I did want to just get a sense of a little bit what's happening for you right now. You mentioned a lot of changes, maybe just a little bit more on what's inspiring you right now. What's your growth edge right now? If you want to share a little bit more about that, um, what's coming up for you. I don't know how much you want to or can share about off the mat, which I know went on a little pause to take in also maybe kind of similar to what you were doing to hear from what the needs are uh, now and anything else you want to share kind of, you know, just about your edge right now and where you're going. And if you want to share anything about, and you don't have to, you're just having a, a granddaughter and because I thought that was interesting that I don't know so much about that, you know, you're in this long-term relationship and you have, a, I think, a stepdaughter and a granddaughter and how that might be impacting the way you you see the world now. I know as a, a mom of a three-year-old that that's been just such a dramatic change in my life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having a granddaughter definitely changed a lot. I've been in a relationship for 22 years and it's something that, you know, sometimes people are always surprised when I talk about how long I've been in a relationship because Al's very um, behind the scenes and he doesn't travel with me. He's very private. He doesn't necessarily want, he doesn't really want the world knowing or being a part of our, our family dynamics. So I've always been really like respectful of that. And I still am. But the truth is I've been in a very long-term relationship with a man who had custody of his three children. I came into their lives and they were very young, eight, 11, and 13, and became someone who was highly, highly influential in their lives and in their upbringing, which is something I, I didn't really appreciate as it was happening. It's now that they're adults, I can look back and be like, wow, that was karmic. Very, very karmic. Me being a parent to these children, not their mother. They have a mother, but I was without a doubt and still am a parent to them. And sometimes it takes a non-biological parent to raise your, you know, raising your children. And that's, my role was very significant and still is. But Ruby had her baby during the pandemic and something very deeply shifted in me related to that. I never wanted to have biological children. I was very, very well aware from the time I was young that I wasn't destined to have children, but I did want a family. And so I was very blessed that I got this instant family of three children. But so to have the gift of being able to be present to a child from birth, to be responsible for the shaping, the guidance of that child has been incredibly meaningful to me. And I thank Ruby all the time for just allowing me in this lifetime Again, this is something that I, it was a sacrifice that I made for a variety of reasons and one that I was very much at peace with, but I'm also, it wasn't like I was disgusted, you know, it wasn't like that. It would be like, you know, oh, I wonder what that's like. I bet that would be amazing. It's not for me, but I bet it would be amazing. 
to be given that gift and to have a stepchild in my life who wants my influence on their child, who values my presence, is just an unimaginable gift. And I'm so grateful for it. It'll be a long, long time before Alita is aware that I'm not biological to her. It will make no difference to her in her life in any capacity, I would imagine. And that's not something I had, which again, I'm just like, this has just been amazing. And I'm good at it. You know, my partner and I are both. I mean, he's an amazing father. He always, it was always very natural for him. I didn't realize how natural it was going to be for me to have an infant toddler in my life. And she's just the best. And so it's been an incredible, profound yoga, one I'm deeply grateful for. I'm intensely moved by. I hope the children have more children. I, you know, encourage it. Mm-hmm. So that's been a, a massive blessing and one unexpected one since I always knew I, I wasn't going to have children. So it feels just abundant and blessed. Other than like that, I'm not really sure where all this is going. Off the mat took a pause because to the, all of us were in the same page. We needed to do some deep inner work on ourselves to really understand how we were needed to show up in the community. I don't feel like I could collaborate with someone authentically right this moment because I'm not 100% sure what it is that I want to share, let alone have to navigate someone else who might not know what they want to share. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we've worked so closely together for so many years and it's been such a creative experience that we're on the same page. Like, whoo, there's a reforming. If we come together, we would do it completely different. The training would be different. It would be through a much more mature lens, but one that needs to be, that needs to be matured. It needs to be sat with. And we also felt, you know, when we created Off the Mat into the world, in the mainstream wellness world, there were not a lot of people that were talking about social justice and providing the skills through that framework. That's not true anymore. There are incredible teachers who, because of their own lived experience, are doing it remarkably better, deeper, then Hollis, Susanna, and myself were doing arguably, you know, that's exactly what we dreamed of. And so I'm not really sure yet who we're teaching to, what's the best use of our teaching. And so better than fumble, especially when off the mat has been as, you know, has been as respected as, as it has been, we felt let's take a pause. Let's take a moment. The work is still continuing. Our community is thriving. We're just stepping back. Also, the fact that we're three presenting white women is really problematic. And Hollis, Suzanne, and I were also in agreement, like, I don't want to do this and continue to center ourselves. And centering ourselves when you're leading an organization is inevitable. Mm -hmm. So how do we do this differently? So we're trying to be really mindful. It's just modeling what we've been doing all along, like, you know, just not being, trying not to be attached and trying to continue to evolve. So that's the deal with off the mat. And we'll see how that off the mat as a, as a functioning philosophy never ends. It's in all of our work. It's just doing it together in an organized way where there's a hierarchy and leadership is something that we really can't get behind, nor do we want to. So we have to shift it. And finally, I think mentorship is in my future. I was sitting with Al yesterday up on the yurt that we have that's near our home. One day I'm going to be building a home there. And some time ago, 
I had it in my mind that I wanted to build this um, off of the yurt, which is completely off the grid, a yoga platform that could hold 40 mats and didn't really give it a lot of thought, just said it. And yesterday we were on the property and it's being built now, like as we speak, there are workers up there that are building this massive platform that overlooks the ocean and all of LA city that's underneath this yurt, that there's a stairway that leads to this yurt. And I was sitting on the deck with Al yesterday saying like, this is the first time where something is happening that I can't quite see the end result that if I used my rational mind, I think to myself, why am I investing mm. in a gigantic yoga platform in an environment where like, I'm now going to need a bathroom and I'm going to need solar and I'm going to need this and that, where's this going? And I said, I'm needing to say it out loud because I think I see where this is going. I want to teach teachers how to teach and I want to do it in my environment in a way that is sustainable to me Yeah, where I can sleep in my own bed in a place that is surrounded by nature in a way in which I can help people find their voice that I can teach them how to communicate to the themes that are relevant to what's happening in the world, how to pray, how to do it, not in the confines of a yoga school that can often influence the way in which I teach, but instead have full accountability for the entire environment without being aligned with a school or a teacher's training or anything else. So I'm seeing that mentorship is in my future, that it's going to be done sustainably so people can come to me rather than me have to get on any more planes. This will allow me to be with my family. That is very important to me right now. And to continue doing my own inner work which means dismantling my identity and showing up to teach in a new and creative way. So to answer your question, Whoa, <laughs> something I love is happening, yes. but I'm not a hundred percent sure yet what it's going to look like. Yeah. But I do think it includes this yoga deck. <laughs> mm. Yeah. The, the word that just keeps showing up for me as you're sharing is emergence. And that's, mm -hmm. That's been a kind of word in my life in the last year. So yes, it's been a, a word in my my life as well. Emergence has very much been a word in my life. So mm. it's a good word to be working with right now. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. it's resonating, and um, I love how you're letting the the unknown and the emergence happen for you. And I'll stay like the listeners on on the edge of my seat and and just <laughs> wait to hear what happens and. I don't know. I'm getting a little vision of myself there one day oh, visiting with so. you. Yeah. And your home and mm -hmm. your beautiful environment there. I, I can just feel the ways that that would be so healing and restorative and wonderful, Sean. And the, and um, you can really see this vision. I appreciate the way you're taking care also of the environment and the way you're thinking about this. So, uh, so important. And being in nature has been really resonant for me. And I think you know, for, for many of us, we're seeing how important it is to step back from some of our depletion of, of resource in the our yep. environment. So, yep. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, I've kept you a long time. <laughs> um, I kind of had a feeling because uh, I don't know, there's just, there's just so much rich stuff to share. And you're always so generous with the way that you share. And I just, I really want to thank you for taking this time with me and with us. You're so welcome. It was my joy. And I appreciate this conversation. And anytime that I can talk about trauma, especially to yoga teachers, And I'm very grateful for you for asking and for giving me the space just to, uh, to connect with you and with the listeners. It does my heart good. And I think that's what's needed right now is just these opportunities just to share and to relate. So thank you very much. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.